This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. And today I'm interviewing Casey Crown. Casey is a psychotherapist, wellness educator, and writer. Her work challenges old mental health paradigms and suggests instead that true well-being lies in our ability to balance scientific and spiritual perspectives. I'm very excited to be speaking with her today, and I promise I'll try not to make this a personal therapy session. Before we get into my conversation with Casey, I'd like to flag that this podcast is meant to be a space for difficult and insightful conversations. With that, we discuss sexual abuse and trauma in this episode, so please consider this a trigger warning. Here's our conversation. My name is Casey Crown. I am an integrative psychotherapist and um, an educator focusing on um, healing trauma in particular um, and and really offering a psycho-spiritual education for my clients and students uh, to support the healing process. Thank you. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu, Casey. I'm very excited to have you here and to speak with you today. Likewise. I'm so grateful to be included in this wonderful podcast. Thank you for having me. What is something that's not on your resume that we should know about you to explain more about who you are as a full person? I think it's so true that our bios in some ways don't really capture our humanity. Um, So let's see. I guess the, the, the most, um, you know, kind of relevant to the topic that I think we're going to cover today is that I have my own experience with trauma and um, have spent much of my life um, both learning to overcome and manage my own relationship to my anxiety. Um, so certainly um, I've learned a lot of what I've learned through experience uh, as it pertains to trauma and healing trauma. And then, you know, I think a couple things to know about me would be that I have kind of a relentless commitment to my own growth, which is um, at times kind of masochistic. (laughs) Um, So I would say that I'm kind of uncomfortable most of the time um, because I'm often confronting my own shadow or or supporting somebody to confront theirs and and providing that reflection can be... um, can be challenging and uncomfortable work. So there's that. Um, I have three daughters. I, I grew up with four brothers. So I thought, wow. <laughs> I thought there's no way God is going to give me a daughter. And I got three, which I feel like was some sort of sick joke. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Yeah. So they're wild and amazing and fun and spirited and challenging in so many ways. And I just mm-hmm. think parenting is by far the hardest job in the world. Um, 
ever and, and one that I feel um, completely unequipped for sometimes. So I would say that my growing edge really lies in my work as a parent. Um, and I guess one more thing about me would be that I am, I love solitude. I love sleep. And, um, you know, even though I love to teach and public speak and work with people, I'm, I'm kind of relatively introverted in that way. I love to be alone, uh, which, which is a tricky situation when you have three children. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't really get to decide when you're alone. Exactly, exactly. And then the last thing I would say is that I'm in a constant conversation with God. Um, so kind of my whole life, I feel like, is one big prayer, um, which is much of how I navigate my own life experience. There's a lot in there, and I, I really appreciate you telling us all of that. You are a psychotherapist and a wellness educator who specializes in trauma and healing, um, and you come to this with your own experience of healing um, and trauma. How, how would you define trauma for people? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, trauma in its essence really just means injury, right? So there are a variety of ways um, that we can become injured throughout our lifetime. Uh, nobody is exempt from experiencing trauma. It is a part of the human experience. So we experience trauma or, or injury at the emotional, mental level, um, physical, sexual, relational, racial. Um, there's really no end <laughs> to the potential experiences of trauma that we can have. Um, and I think also there's, um, you know, there's, developmental trauma, which is trauma that really happens in your kind of earlier developmental years. There's intergenerational trauma or ancestral trauma, which is trauma that's passed down through family systems. Um, there's single event trauma, right? Like an accident. Um, there are um, also chronic traumas, right? So a chronic trauma might be something like a pandemic that won't end or, <laughs> or um systemic racism. It can be growing up in an abusive home. Um, I have a client that calls it kind of death by a thousand cuts, right? So chronic exposure to trauma is a, is a very particular kind of, a, of trauma. Um, so, so those are the, you know, a few of the different kinds of trauma. But how these injuries affect us is another story altogether. And really, I would start at the kind of neurobiological level, which is to say that when we experience trauma, um, it, it affects our brain and our extended mm -hmm. nervous system. It is a whole body experience. Um, and so, you know, we have these brains that are these kind of complex systems um, designed to organize information and energy. So all day long, we're having conversations, we're taking in information, and the brain just knows how to organize that information. When we experience a traumatic event, it is almost like a burst of energy that's too significant for the brain to effectively organize, right? That's kind of one of the simplest ways that I can put it, right? So I love that. Yeah. So imagine, you know, any, any kind of traumatic injury, it's like this burst of energy that comes into the system. And what happens is our brain is designed, all these different hemispheres of the brain are designed to communicate with one another. And we have this one area of the brain, um, which is kind of the reptilian brain, uh, the limbic region of the brain where the amygdala sits, largely responsible for our, our big emotional reactions. And what happens when uh, an, an injury occurs is that 
our limbic region of the brain is activated and in fact overactivated in many ways because we're designed for survival. Um, and, and we can go into fight or flight, freeze, faint mode. Um, and and when that limbic region of the brain becomes so overactive, um, it actually impairs the integrative fibers of the brain connecting to the prefrontal cortex, right? So where our executive functioning exists, right? So we're not able to necessarily reason with the experience that we're having, okay? And this is not the only part of the brain that's affected when we experience trauma, but because we're designed towards survival, what we do, right, what our brain does and, and, and what we do consciously, separately from the brain, is we adapt. We try to figure out how to survive, right? And what happens is we often adapt these coping strategies that are really quite creative in many ways, but they're often maladaptive. So a creating creative str coping strategy for surviving trauma might be something like addiction or depression, anxiety as a form of self-protection, right? To, to, if you're, if you're constantly hypervigilant, right, then you're in this kind of heightened state all the time scanning for threat, right? So ultimately what happens is trauma makes it difficult for us to exist in the present moment, right? Which as you know, at, from this beautiful book, um, Everyday Ubuntu, which you wrote, if we, you know, presence is such a vital component to our being able to experience trust and awe and connection and all of these really important qualities that we need in order to, to experience well-being and health. Um, so when we're in this kind of hypervigilant state, um, either, you know, hyper aroused or hypo aroused, which is more dissociative, where we kind of like exit the body energetically, we, neither of those states allow us to be embodied right? Embodied in the present moment. Um, and so <clears throat> we're constantly kind of preparing for potential threats or reliving past experiences because the brain hasn't really been able to figure out how to organize that experience, right? How to make sense of it, how to create meaning out of it. Um, so trauma work is very much about um, reorganizing the system and also, um, you know, extracting meaning from these really profound, sometimes adverse experiences that we have in our lives, um, because we really have a choice at some level. We can either allow those experiences to take from us, or we can learn how to take from them. Um, and, and so um, I hope that gives you like kind of a general explanation of trauma. <laughs> I mean, that, there are like so many thoughts that I could take from that. Um, it, it makes me think of I think in the book, I mentioned that a, a family friend who passed away, um, who was like a mediation trainer, sort of discussed the fight of flight also was like the amygdala hijack, mm -hmm. where like, you just like, yeah, what you said, like, you just don't know how to respond. Exactly, um, exactly. And that, I mean, so then with trauma work, I think, you know, one of the things that this makes me wonder is human nature is about empathy and sympathy and being able to recognize someone's experience. Um, and I think today a big thing that we deal with is, you know, people are always comparing their experiences and, and I don't know if compare is the right word, but when it comes to trauma is, are there times when it's helpful to be comparing or when you do work, is it, 
is it actually helpful to sit in the individual experience with your clients instead of allowing them to compare to other people, whether they think someone's trauma is worse or better? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I think it's a really great question Um, because you're really kind of looking at what is unique and individual versus what is human and Mm -hmm. related to our interconnectedness, right? So the best way I know how to kind of explain this is through the difference between empathy and compassion. Um, So, and this was a really revelatory thing for me as somebody who actually is afflicted by over-empathizing, right? And I'll explain that. So empathy is really the ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, right? And certainly some people are born more empathic than others. It's, it's, not, it's neither here nor there. It's not good or bad, but some people are just more sensitive. And, um, you know, empathy is a, such a useful tool. And, and, you know, all we hear now, especially as it pertains to children and social emotional development is how important it is that we foster empathy in children to create a better world and all this stuff. But what we don't talk enough about is what we need in addition to empathy in order to make empathy useful, which is compassion. So empathy allows us to feel into the experience of another person, right? Which is that piece where it's kind of like, okay, I can deeply relate to your suffering, right? Maybe I might even get so close as to compare my suffering to yours because it feels so resonant, right? So that comparison piece that you were referencing compassion is about giving people the dignity of their own experience and their own process. Compassion is about saying, I trust that I don't know why this experience has happened to you, right? That Mm -hmm. there is, there is so much that I don't understand about this experience, but I trust that you have the inner resources and the wisdom to survive this, to get through this. And I am going to love you, right? And I am going to be of service in the ways that I can without martyring myself because of my empathy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. So it's like, these are, these are two things that need to work in companion, right? These are companion emotions. Um, I think empathy without compassion is, is potentially harmful. Um, So it's really important that we develop an understanding of both of those things and learn how to kind of foster them in ourselves, right? And compassion as a therapist, right? Like I'm around trauma all the time. And so I I wouldn't survive it if I didn't have compassion, if I didn't look at every client and go, I trust, right, that we are going to find meaning in this and that you are going to survive this and that you are going to become the best version of yourself because of this or in spite of this, right? I trust that. So I don't need to sit here and go, this is wrong. This is horrible. This is right. And judge it because of how painful it is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does that answer your question? Yeah. And, you know, I, I like to think that I'm like pretty in tune and in touch with things, but I, I don't think that I've ever thought about it in the, those two ways. It's a helpful, it's a helpful distinction. I think that we don't often think about. Oh my God. Okay. Well, so then with this, I, I I think both having empathy and compassion goes along with emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure my friends will think I'm like a broken record, but I think (laughs) one of our problems today is that like, I just don't see a lot of emotional intelligence in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I think it's very harmful, but I don't know if, if you would say that's one of our gravest, gravest problems or if there's something else that you think is like the most harmful to us. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I certainly agree that it is up there. <laughs> it's, it's a problem. Um, but, you know, it's like I think sometimes when we talk about emotional intelligence, um, we assume that it has to do with whether or not people are smart. Right. Mm -hmm. And really emotional intelligence um, is something that needs to be seeded through education. And unfortunately, we don't have this like robust social emotional education that that is, um, you know, implemented either through, you know, parenting or schooling or what have you as we develop. And now, granted, we've learned a lot um, in, you know, the field of neuroscience and psychology and all of that about mental health and about emotional intelligence over the last 20 years. Um, so perhaps it's still novel territory, but I think people don't develop emotional intelligence because we don't have, um, a really consistent dialogue about how pervasive trauma is, right? We don't educate people from an early age to say, Hey, like, you will be traumatized if you aren't already. So let me normalize that experience for you, right? And then let me tell you what's not normal about it and how to attend to it, right? What are the what is happening in the brain? What is happening in the body? How can we start to to cultivate an understanding of how our experiences affect and shape our development so that we then have the awareness and the insight to know you know, what might be triggering us or, or what might be underlying a particular behavior. And we have the kind of the, the wherewithal then to attend to that experience by getting the support that we need, you know, reading the books that we need to read, developing the tools that, you know, I think we're so accustomed to um, collapsing into shame as human mm -hmm. beings right? Which is this idea that we're defective and something is wrong with us, right? Um, we can't seem to separate an experience or a behavior from, right, from an actual like inner quality, right? So when we internalize shame, it's really hard to develop insight because all we're doing is trying to survive um, that experience of feeling ashamed, feeling unworthy. So we spend too much time focusing on proving our worth, and not enough time acknowledging our worth and then understanding what it is that underlies our kind of maladaptive behaviors, right? So emotional intelligence has to, like the first step to developing emotional intelligence is education. We all need to understand how our brains and our bodies and our relationships work, right? Um, so, so I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to cultivate more of that in humanity um, and hopefully experiences like the ones we're having now are inspiring people to wake up mm -hmm. to the need for understanding that more fully. Um, but ultimately I would say that the other kind of the gravest problem beyond emotional intelligence is what Einstein called the delusion of separateness, right? And I know you talk a lot about this <laughs> in everyday Ubuntu, so this is not new information for you by any means. Um, and another one of the ways in which Ubuntu, I think, is aligned with my work 
um, which I love. I loved seeing all the overlap in, in reading your book. Um, but yeah, we, one of the things that trauma does, you know, just as it ruptures connections in the brain, it really ruptures our connection to one another and our connection to the ecology, right? To recognizing how we are not separate from the environment, from the earth. It, rupt- it can rupture a connection with um, a sense of the spiritual, a divine connection. Um, so this idea of separateness is probably the most, you know, from a mental health standpoint in particular, dangerous um, to humanity. I feel like you're reading my mind because I was, you know, going to say, I think from speaking to you a bit, Ubuntu probably shows up in your work a lot. And I, I, with that, I think Ubuntu requires us to have difficult conversations. I think this time we're in now is definitely showing us that like without difficult conversations, we cannot get to the next state or stage, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm wondering, you know, as you've been learning about Ubuntu and in your work, if you've been having difficult conversations and and sort of how those look or how those make you feel mm-hmm. um, in your work and as a person, as a mother, as a wife, you know, and everything that it, that makes you Casey. Yeah. Well, I like I kind of said in the beginning, um, I'm uncomfortable most of the time. So I think <laughs> I actually think my life is one big uncomfortable conversation, to be quite honest. Um and, you know, I laugh about that, but I'm not always laughing about that. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it does require us to have difficult conversations, right? The only way to alleviate shame and to grow is to face the shadow. And that's just inherently uncomfortable. Um, and so, you know, I would say the most recent uncomfortable conversation I've been having is the one um, is, is one related to racism and and the anti-racism education that I'm currently doing um, Mm -hmm. to explore my own shadow, my own kind of participation. And um, that's been an interesting and painful dance that I'm very much in the midst of where it's like, you know, it's like, it's like opening Pandora's box in this way. (laughs) And you're like, Oh my God, like here, here I thought I was this, you know, advocate of equity and social justice. And then, you know, it was like this, this layer of the onion had to come off that I wasn't aware of. And, and now that it has, it's been overwhelming in many ways. Um, but what is, what is beautiful about it is that I can lean on my practices, just like, um, you know, you talk about in everyday Ubuntu and, and, focus first on forgiveness, right? Okay. Like I have to forgive myself, um, you know, for participating in this in the way that I have, right? Because I think when we collapse into shame and guilt and over-responsibility, we are no longer effective. We can, mm-hmm. we can no longer grow. We can no longer participate in the solution, right? It's like, first I have to forgive myself for what I wasn't aware of to begin with, right? Right. But forgiveness does not get us off the hook, right? So what's uncomfortable about growth, and this is a big thing that, you know, I have with clients is, um, you know, I'm not interested in your growth for your growth alone, right? So when a client comes to me, right, I'm interested in your growth so that you can become the best version of yourself so that you can contribute to a better world, 
mm-hmm. right? So that you can figure out how to serve a higher purpose, right? And that doesn't mean everybody needs to become a saint and a what have you. But the point is, whatever your unique expression is, whatever creative truth you can bring forward, whatever skill set that you have, we want to get to the bottom of that and figure out how we can support you to share that with the world, right? And so as I look at these difficult conversations I'm having, you know, it's like, I don't know exactly how that plays out in this moment in terms of service, right? How do I heal this in me so that I can be of greater service to the world and be more loving and compassionate and, and, but I'm in that process, right? So the forgiveness piece is super important. And then the accountability piece, right? I'm going to forgive myself, but I'm not going to let myself off the hook. Right. And that's deeply Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my, um, my partner is white and he sort of explained it as like, they're, they're just, they're levels that you just like, you're getting to the next one. And so even if you may be on level 20 and most Americans may be on level five, like you still have about a hundred more levels. So, and I was like, well, if that is how you think of it, then go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, I do really believe that we're all exactly where we're supposed to be in our spiritual psychological process. Um, I know that's really hard when you look at how painful humanity is and how poorly humanity is behaving in this moment. And it's hard to accept that. Um, And yet, you know, I I can only reference my own experience, but like, I like as much as I would like to be further along in my conscious development, right. I know that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I couldn't be further along. Right. So I have to, that's part of the, the process is, is recognizing that, forgiving that, and, and then allowing that to be part of the foundation that helps us keep, um, keep on moving forward. That's an interesting way. I think, I mean, you know, I am someone that I think struggles with patience. Mm-hmm. So hearing that makes me think like, oh, okay, well that requires patience of me. And like, that's something I need to work on because <laughs> I don't know how much of that I have to give currently, but, but I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I can appreciate that patient. I'm, I'm right there with you. Actually, It's, it's just, it's just not my strong suit. I heard, um, I was listening to a podcast recently. I heard Glennon Doyle, who just wrote this great book called untamed say she loves humanity, but she doesn't like humans. And she said something to that effect. I'm I'm misquoting her, but I was like, yes, that's how I feel. (laughs) I'm getting it. Yeah. 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 I I, I want my patient with humans, but like humanity, I know is just good at its core and we can get there. Let's get back to the collective. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, so I want to, I have a question that's sort of about language because I'm, I'm sure that language comes in very heavily to trauma work. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's something that I've noticed with women is how much effort we put into describing things or not describing things. And I think the example is an instance of sexual assault where I can say sexual assault, but if I have to say the four letter word that starts with R, it it just will not come out of my mouth. Mm. If I've had this discussion with friends, they also cannot just bring themselves to say if that is what it was. And instead we, you know, put it in this little bow. I don't think it's a pretty bow, but like somehow there are certain words that we just cannot 
fathom to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I wonder what that is. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, well, you know, again, I'll I'll return to my favorite emotion. <laughs> that cripples us, uh, which is shame. Um, but you know, there's a couple things that are really important about language. So if I'm working with a client who's experienced sexual assault in the form of rape in my practice, then the most important thing for me to do is create a really safe container, right? My Mm -hmm. job as a clinician is to create a safe container within which people can do their own work, right? I'm not a healer. I am a facilitator of the healing process, and an educator about healing. So when I have my clients come in, if, if I have a client that has experienced a really profound, profound trauma like this, right? First, I want to establish a safe container. And then it's going to be really important for us to name it exactly as it is. Mm-hmm. Because one of the reasons we don't name things is because they evoke these profound experiences of shame. And shame has this way of controlling us right? It completely controls our behavior, our responses, our participation in the world, right? We are constantly trying to manage our own shame, avoid going into shame, avoid shaming other people, etc. So I think um, naming things, especially as, a, um, as someone who has experienced a trauma, naming it and naming it explicitly is really important. But I actually think you're on to something else that's really important is if you're having these conversations outside of the context of a safe container, then I don't think it's the worst thing in the world not to name, to find a more sensitive way to name things. And okay. it's, it's not an avoidant tactic so much as it is a sensitivity to the potential harm that can be caused by talking about things without making sure whoever's listening is, is um, residing within a safe container to be able to hear it that make sense? Yeah. 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 So that's kind of, um, I guess it's sort of like a trigger warning, but yes. Yeah. 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 And it's okay to get triggered. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the point of life is not to avoid getting triggered. It's to learn how to become resilient and adaptable and survive those experiences. So, but nonetheless, um, we need a foundation, we need a safe container and we need support to in particular when it comes to really profound experiences of trauma and abuse. Okay. That's, yeah, that is one way that I didn't think of it. And, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that you are constantly in a state of being uncomfortable. And so um, do you think there's like a quote or a phrase or a mantra that sort of pushes you to A, get to the next stage of being uncomfortable? Um because I'm, you know, I think in those stages, you're working through things. Yeah. So what helps you keep going? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like I mentioned earlier, I'm in a constant conversation with God. So I think my go-to is prayer um, as opposed to mantra. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I think oftentimes those can be the same thing. So my my number one prayer that I probably, you know, hear myself say, a thousand times a day is show me the way. Um, I think that it is a constant reminder that I'm not alone, um, that it's okay that I don't have it all figured out, that my responsibility is to pay attention um, and look for guidance everywhere. Um, And so I I would say that that's, and it's also this kind of 
it, it is this, it keeps me connected, right? It's this partnership that I feel, right? I'm in this co-creative partnership here um, as a human being. And, and so, so show me the way is one of those, mo- it allows me to acknowledge that I'm not alone, which gives me a great deal of, of, of peace. Um, and then the thing that I, the, the, the thing I probably say to my clients, and we just talked about this um, a few minutes ago, is you are exactly where you're supposed to be, right? Um, it's, it's, if we cannot be here, then we cannot get there, right? So having, having a vision <laughs> um, for where we want to go is beautiful, Right. Having a goal, having a, um, you know, being inspired to do something of value um, is it, it's all wonderful. So it's OK to look to the future. Um, but oftentimes what happens is we're just comparing ourselves against a future self that we haven't become. Mm-hmm. And then we're experiencing disappointment in the here and now. So that is a hamster wheel we have to get off of if we want to actually be effective is the one where we're constantly trying to prove our worth or get to that next phase where we think happiness or joy or relief or peace resides. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It's all about acknowledging the present moment and being here now. Well, I was actually going to ask about happiness and joy and if you sort of see a difference between them. I had to speak at a festival in February and they had asked me to come and speak about happiness and I completely hijacked it and said, I think happiness is just a state that can be easily changed into sadness. Um, So I'm not going to talk about happiness, but I will talk about joy because my mother has said to me that joy is something that she sees in, you know, all the freedom fighters in South Africa under apartheid who even in the toughest moments of their life could still find joy because they knew of like their infinite worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm wondering not about happiness, but how you get people who have experienced trauma to joy mm. or to, to feeling that infinite worth and value that they have. Yeah. That's yeah. That's beautiful. Um, you know, I, I actually also, I agree with your mother and you, um, have, She's a smart one. Yeah, have, and as are you clearly, mm-hmm. um, I, happiness is not the goal, obviously. Um, it, it is fleeting. Um, I think of happiness as material. So when I think of, um, happiness, I think of the experience that one has when they get a new purse or they get a new car or, right. It, it, it's very much, um, kind of surface level mm-hmm. and not what true joy is made of. Um, and again, joy is something that, that I think we experience through presence, right. Through dropping into, our humanity through dropping into experiences of gratitude, right? Through dropping into awe, right? Um, you talked in your book about um, kind of I, I, the language I would use is zooming out to get a bird's eye view perspective. Um, and you you had, I think you said seeing the wider perspective or something of that nature in, yeah. in everyday Ubuntu. And, you know, I think sometimes we're just in the center of our emotional storm. 
Um, and so it's really difficult to see the forest through the trees. And when we are able to zoom out um, and, and gain that wider perspective, right, where it's like there's, there's an ability to see um, kind of more of a divine order to things. There's an ability to really get not neutral, you know, meaning unaffected, but um, to a more place, a place of greater neutrality and peace within ourselves and acceptance of what is, right? And I think that's what joy is made of. It's about sustaining these moments of awe, these moments of gratitude, these moments of acceptance, right? It's about sustaining a connection to those experiences of Ubuntu that you talk about. Um, and but joy, like many emotions, is it's not, you know, endless, but there is an endless amount of joy that we have access to, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. We're going to ride the wave of joy and we're going to dip into anger and rage and we're going to come into fear and, right? But at the end of the day, there is an endless well, right, of access to joy through the present moment, whereas happiness is material. So it's just not, doesn't have the same effect. It's like poofs here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I say very honestly that Ubuntu is something that I'm still, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say just because I've written a book that I'm the expert. And so I'm still learning. And as someone who struggles with anxiety, mm -hmm. really want to feel that joy all the time. But then I'm also thinking, this is too good right now. Like, what's going to happen? And and, you know, I have a partner who does not struggle with anxiety. And so I, I think sometimes people misunderstand the struggle and don't realize that it's that we are almost too self-aware of things um, and that we're just constantly looking out. As you said, we're, we're looking out for the threats. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you with clients, you know, do work on how their partners can help in, mm -hmm. the, in the moment or how they can deal with it and sort of understand because you know I can like talk about anxiety until I'm blue in the face but I, I still it's the same thing of the yes I can I can understand but I'm not going to really understand unless I'm in that moment right right um yeah thank you for sharing that and 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 in particular for sharing your own experience um with anxiety, because I, I think more people need to know, um, you know, how pervasive it is that so many of us struggle with this affliction um, and gift, right? It's like a gift and a curse um, mm -hmm. in that, you know, I, I, I really learned early on um, in my healing work, my personal healing work, that anxiety is information, right? It's just information, and so instead of constantly trying to run away from it, the best thing to do is turn towards it and start communicating with it, for one. Um, but, you know, anxiety is what's so interesting about what you're talking about in particular, this kind of hypervigilance and this kind of fear is this element that accompanies those things, which is control, Right. Um, so when we experience trauma, we go through a whole series of things that happen in the brain and the body and in our kind of connections to one another. And we, um, we, you know, adapt these coping strategies and, um, 
we also internalize these cognitions, right? Or filters of consciousness. So for example, um, you know, if I've experienced abuse, then the, the cognition or the fear might be, I am not enough or I am not worthy, right? So that's kind of like somewhere in my unconscious mind always operating, right? So as we go into the world to survive, we are in this competition with ourselves and the world to prove that that is not necessarily true, right? So that's one example, right? Um, another one might be if I've been, you know, abused or, or assaulted in a particular way, I am not safe in my body, right? Um, or a- any number of cognitions can develop. But we, we end up in our, in our kind of, in this kind of um, trickle-down effect, um, end up at these coping strategies, and they fall into one of two categories. And they are either rigid coping strategies or they are chaotic coping strategies. So chaotic coping strategies might be things like um, addictions to opioids, you know, a, a real impulse control issue, right? The life, the, you know, things are messy, you know, out of control. So, and, and then on the flip side of that, the other category that we will potentially fall into is rigidity, right? With, yep, me too, <laughs> which is where that I swing more, more to the rigid side than I do to the chaotic side. Although my past would tell you otherwise. I kind of, I've, I've done the 180 degrees from crazy is still crazy swing, right? From I went from chaos to rigidity and now I'm sort of in the middle, but I would say I definitely lean more towards control, right? And, and what's interesting about this particular side of the pendulum is that with chaos, it's very obvious, right? Mm-hmm. And so our attention as a society, goes toward healing the chaos. Let's manage the symptoms. Let's get people into treatment centers. Let's deal with these, you know, health crises that are, you know, addictions and things like that. So our attention goes to kind of pathologizing people that are demonstrating chaotic coping strategies. And what we are ignoring at some level as a society is the people, and many of us fall into this category, who fall into the rigidity category, category, right? Who are managing their symptoms of anxiety through control, right? Which has equally harmful effects. They're just more subtle, right? Mm -hmm. They're not as visible to the naked eye because we can look at somebody and go, oh, she really has her act together. She looks very organized. Yes, right? But maybe she's you know, on a hamster wheel of proving her worth through status and materialism and perfectionism and control, like, right. It's like, who knows what's potentially going on there. So, and that's not the case with everybody, but, but for the most part, we, we tend to lean towards one end of the spectrum or the other when it comes to surviving our, um, our trauma. And so insofar as your partner is concerned, Again, I would go back to education. Like what we we just don't know this stuff, right? We don't realize how um, much sense it makes, right? And 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 so every time you know somebody is struggling with issues of anxiety and control, or somebody is struggling with issues of anxiety that you know manifest themselves in addiction, we are shame. We're so ashamed, and we're so self-critical, 
And we, we jump, we go straight to that. Something's wrong with me. I'm defective instead of, Oh no, you know, I've been impacted or affected by an experience of trauma and this is a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. Right. So educating your partner, educating yourselves together about how your, you know, your brain and your body respond to your life experience. And by the way, like a person that has perceives themselves to never have experienced a major trauma is still traumatized. You cannot be human and not be traumatized. Turn on the news for an hour. This world. Right? It's the information that we are taking in all the time is, has pr profoundly harmful effects on the psyche and on the body. So I think it's so important that we also, you know, pay attention to what information we're taking in. Oh, wow. I feel like I could discuss all of this with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, okay, one really important question yeah. I want to ask you is, what is your greatest hope for humanity? Okay, so what's my greatest hope for humanity? Um, my greatest hope for humanity is that we, I would, I'll speak to this particular moment in time, because I think we're being presented with a really incredible opportunity right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I said right when the pandemic hit that we have this experience that's affecting everybody in some way. Um, so there's a universality to the experience, which helps illuminate how interconnected humanity is. And it's affecting people in very different ways. It is illuminating profound inequities in the human experience right? And so it's like, to me, it's like, it makes so much sense, right? That what followed the, the pandemic, um, you know, affecting humanity is this, you know, movement, the civil rights movement, this movement to, um, towards greater equity for all humans, right? It's like, of course, right? It was inevitable. And I just, you know, when I think of the divine order of things, right, it's like, that's the bird's eye view perspective is like, oh, wow. Right. When you get into the nitty gritty of it, it feels like this is wrong. This has to change. This is terrible. Right. But when you zoom out and you look for what is the greater spiritual lesson here, right, that humanity can take away. Right. It is this lesson of interconnectedness. It's this lesson of, oh, my gosh, we're all human. Right. There is no human being on the planet that has greater value than another, right? We have had it so wrong in so many ways. And so if humanity can learn from this, right? And, and we are in a growth period. So we are experiencing all the darkness that comes from a growth period. All the shadows are coming to the surface, right? It's like every door you open, it's like terrifying what's behind it. Um, if you go online or if you look at the news, it's just, you know, it's really, it feels like the end of the world. Um, and maybe it is, I don't know, but if it isn't, then my greatest hope for humanity is that we learn from this and we grow from it and we foster, um, the Ubuntu values that your, um, family and you have, you know, shared with the world that we really connect to. A, a greater sense of empathy and compassion and, um, and love for our fellow human and, and 
do whatever we can do unique to our kind of gifts to participate in the healing. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.